Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, spring has sprung in the UK and it is a wonderful June morning here in the capital. And joining me on the programme today in such a setting is Fiona Allman-Treen. Fiona is Director of Fat Promotions, a website and online software systems designer. Uh, Fiona, hello. Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me back. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Of course, not the first time you've joined us on the uh, the show. And the last time we spoke um, was a short way into the COVID-19 lockdown. And all this time later, albeit there are now signs of an exit route, we are still very much within social restrictions in one form or another. So looking back over the last 14 months by and large that we've lived under this lockdown, how has this all as a whole affected you and your business, would you say? Well, it's certainly been an experience, I'll put it that way. Um, yeah, it's been positive in, in truth, largely positive. We've managed to um, adapt a lot of our systems and processes to use more of a, an agile working model. And uh, now we actually have doubled the team during that time, but we're, we're now able to recruit from further afield because all of my team are now working remotely across the UK. And it's meant that we've had access to some really top talent that otherwise we wouldn't have had. So in that way, there's definitely been a silver lining. That sounds really positive. And with regards to adapting to that challenge of working remotely and having to sort of lead from afar, have you found that you've had to sort of adapt your own leadership style in that sense? Oh, hugely. Hugely. I've always been very much a lead by example person. So being in an office, that's very easy to do, particularly with new members of staff with onboarding. That's been great to just sit side by side and walk them through the process. Of course, you're not able to do that, although it is wonderful being able to use video conferencing. And uh, we've certainly used a lot of um, communication systems and new software in that way. But it's, it's been more about now. It's about delegating and trusting in your team, really. That's been the big eye-opener for me personally. I think that's been the, the biggest uh, adaptation I've had to make over the last 12 to 15 months has, has been to say, do you know what, do you, if you understand how to do it, I'm just going to leave you to it, and then you can come back to me with any queries. So that's been a big learning curve for me, and I think I'm not the only owner-manager who's seen that over the last, last year or so. Mm. It certainly reminded us all that trust is one of the key hallmarks of leadership within business. I think that's very, very right. And I suppose one pitfall I think we should discuss when it comes to the remote working side of things is that it can, I suppose, be quite difficult to pick up on certain well-being and mental health cues when people are sort of in their own spaces and isolated and working remotely. So is it sort of difficult to keep tabs on that when you are sort of working within that sort of framework? It's definitely been a challenge, and it's it's something that I've discovered is really at the forefront of how a lot of um, owners and, and proprietors are looking at their businesses now, is making sure their team are okay. I mean, for us, we have um, 
several programmers and developers now, they may not naturally be the most gregarious and outgoing people, but that doesn't mean they necessarily want to be stuck inside their, their own homes 24-7 and not really getting any social interaction at all. So it's been a challenge to, to keep in touch with them, to reach out to them without overstepping, because as an employer, you've got to be very sensitive to these things. There's mm. only so many things that you can ask in this regard. But yeah, the uh, the mental health issue has come to the fore. And I've certainly discovered it a lot more in networking events. I'm hearing more and more owners um, and leaders who are talking about exactly this, is how to manage that mental health. It's not a challenge that many of them previously considered, myself included, if I'm honest. And the work-life balance, as we've talked about there, is hugely important, isn't it? Having that time out as well. And I think as well as employees, it is also important for business leaders and executives to have that. Um, within the Leaders' Council um, of late, um, over the last few weeks, we've talked an awful lot about the impacts of stress on business leaders and about CEO burnout. And it's quite easy when you're sort of sucked into survival mode during a crisis like COVID to sort of be absorbed in that world of I'm running the business, I'm keeping everything afloat, I'm keeping an eye on everyone else. And you almost kind of neglect your own well-being in a way, don't you? So it's important, even in a leadership role at the top of a company, to also be able to have that time to step back and switch off and recharge the batteries when you need it too. Yes, definitely. And I think it's one of those old adages of always put your mask on first. Put your own mask on first before you help <laughs> those around you. Um, but it's, it's certainly something that I've found working from home. I, I haven't worked from home since I started my business 20 years ago. So it's quite an interesting shift. And at first, it's very nice and very novel. And then you have days like yesterday where I was so busy, flat out working. And then you suddenly realize it's five o'clock and I haven't stepped outside the house all day. So this is where, this is where having a dog comes in handy, of course, because they, they won't let you stay indoors <laughs> for long. But it is, it is something to, to consider that we have to look after ourselves and as you say, exactly that, get out of survival mode. We all went straight into survival mode, and, and it really was a case that we had no choice. Coming back out of that is another one of, of those um, trust issues. It's another point in our in our careers where, as leaders, we've had to step back and say, do you know what? We just have to believe that it's okay. I don't have to be at this 24-7-365. I can take a break, and I need to take a break. It's so important. I think the good weather will help a lot with that. That will get people out and about a bit more. It's easy to stay indoors when it's dark and it's raining. <laughs> I do totally agree with all of that, and I think something you touched on earlier as well about delegating and trusting people, that's also incredibly mm. important because eventually, I suppose, when businesses are growing especially, um, one of the key things you will eventually have to do as a business leader is move away from the day-to-day -day running of a business and be able to have more scope to work on the strategic side of things and so having that ability to step back is hugely important yes and it's not easy it's not an easy shift i think particularly you know if you start out yourself as i did you know me the cat and the keyboard and it's to, to have grown to a team of now we have 12 in the team now and uh, to be trying to manage all of those is a exhausting, and b it's not the best use of my time. But it's it's recognising that and what to do about it. Because as you say, the delegation side of thing is something I genuinely believe all uh, owner managers uh, struggle with mm. at some point. And uh, I actually had a really interesting conversation with one of my clients who just recently sold his business, built it, and sold it. And I said to him, well, come on, you know, you ran that business for over 20 years. What can I learn from you? What's, you know, what's the real lesson? What's the one thing you wish you'd done differently? And he said unequivocally straight away, no doubt, 
get help sooner. He said, because I was still trying to do it all myself and it's a mistake and it chokes the business. It chokes growth in the early years. And I thought that's really invaluable. I, I've hung on to that very closely. Mm. And in your situation, if you could go back to the day when you first founded Fat Promotions, um, is there anything that you'd sort of do differently in that sense? Oh, what a fantastic question. Um, what would I do differently? I think much the same. I think I would have got help sooner and delegated faster because it's one thing to take on a team. I mean, I think in year three, we had a team of about four um, altogether in the company, but it was still everything had to go through me. And there comes a point when when you have to, and I know it's a cliche, but you have to take on people who know more than you do. Mm. And uh, it, I do, it, do find it amusing time to time when elderly relatives will say to me, but you could be building the websites and the software yourself. And I'm like, but that's not my strength. I've got people who just live and breathe that. That's what they love to do and it lights them up. And again, it, it comes full circle to that filling your own cup. I could sit and, and design websites and develop software all day, but it doesn't light me up the way finding solutions and the strategy side of things does for me. That's where my strength lies. So it's everyone playing to their own strengths because if you're doing that, then it's not a long day. It doesn't matter how many hours you work. It's what you love to do. And that's where the focus is. If you can find that for your team, if you, and if you can help them find it, because very often they don't realize what lights them up. If you can spend time with individual members of your team and find out what it is that lights them up and try and give them more of that, they'll be more productive and they'll be happier. So it's a win-win. I did love that piece of advice that you uh, sort of mentioned there. Surround yourself with better people, bring better people in who know more than you do. And I think it's certainly for any younger viewers that might be tuning into this who are of the entrepreneurial mindset and are thinking of starting a business. It's one of the best pieces of advice that you can give. And even in spite of the state of the economy as well, Fiona, it's not like there's a lack of opportunity. And now even is a great time to perhaps think about starting a business, isn't it? Oh, yeah, there's a huge number of new businesses starting up. We've had more inquiries from startups in the last six months than we had in the previous year before COVID all kicked in. So there's definitely, there's an element of that. And I think there's a lot of re-evaluation. People who've been in business for a short while working for other people, and they're suddenly thinking, is this really what I want to be doing? And that's where the, the startups that I'm seeing are coming from, the majority of them, is from people who are doing that. They're, they're re-evaluating their life. They're saying, do I want to go back to the way things were? And I think that's the key thing. I think as business in this country, if we're going to move forward, we need to remember the important part of that is forward. Mm. This whole idea of going back to normal, back to where we are, isn't going to happen. So a new business starting up is a great way to do that. And it's a very exciting time. You know, I still remember that the buzz of doing it initially and you think, oh my gosh, what am I doing? So I can totally get why people are doing that. But it gives them more freedom and just that sense of I think in a time where we felt so utterly out of control with what's happening in our environment and our economy it's a time when people need to feel some control so if they can't get that in the job that they have they're going to go looking for it somewhere else and maybe start their own job. Exactly right and I think history shows as well that some of the biggest businesses out there are born out of times of economic hardship also and uh, we talked about um sort of the delegation side of things that's so important from that business point of view quite a bit already and um, how sort of flexible working practices have been really advantageous in creating conditions to allow that delegation to happen to make that easier for you. So with all of that in mind, given that technology is tipped now, of course, to play much more of an integral role in our day-to-day -day lives, 
Do you think that flexible working practices are going to be the status quo or could the office environment as we knew it maybe return in vogue one day? I think it'll go in cycles. I think as as I've seen over the years with my business, there have been cycles where everyone wanted to work from home, cycles where everyone wanted to come into a a cool Google style office with bean bags and slides and sweetie machines and things like this. I think it goes in swings and roundabouts. And I think at the moment, People are valuing their homes. Yes, they might be a bit fed up with being stuck at home all the time, um, but they are, they're valuing more what they have. And I think that will continue for, I would say, at least for the next couple of years. But I think employers now are learning to be flexible and they're learning that actually rather than trying to force people to come into an office to the same place, same time every day, then th- there is that flexibility if they can give them the option to work from home, even if it's a couple of days a week. They can have the best of both worlds as well as their staff can have the best of both worlds. I I think that that will continue. That's definitely a trend that we see continuing. A huge number of our clients have said they are now dividing into work and home and and trying to keep that balance, not just because it means they can limit the number of people in the office at any one time, but because it's what people want, it's what people are looking at now as as the real, I think this is the closest we've come to a work-life balance in, Mm. in my lifetime so far. Exactly right. And I think when it comes to learning, we've seen so much innovation, as we mentioned already, and it's reminded everyone that every single day is a school day. And I think we need to make sure that the lessons that we have learned during the pandemic, we certainly don't lose sight of in future, because it's going to be important as we move into the post-COVID world to keep what we've learned close to us. Yes, I think that's the key thing is, is that people can't think, oh, well, when this all blows over, you know, we'll never have to worry about that again. this again. I think um, I recently put an article on LinkedIn saying, you know, review what has worked and what hasn't, because that's what we've done as an exercise as a team. And we've come out of, you know, this with what we want to keep going. Things like uh, remote training, for example, where we've always done face-to-face training on our software launches. We're now doing that remotely. And then we're able to give the video afterwards so that the client has that to go back and refer to at any time. So that's an added value that's cost us no more. It's not given us any more hassle. It was just learning one new little bit of software and we've been able to put that into place. So you can be adding value without having to do more. And Mm. I think that's the key where people are feeling a little bit burnt out. They don't want to be trying to throw more and more and more at their clients. And sometimes the clients don't want it. They just want a a bit of peace and (laughs) stability. So it's, yeah, the use of the technology, as you say, can, can be a really powerful tool if you take the time to review what you want to take forward. Because I think as business owners, we forget it's up to us what we take forward. Mm, it is, exactly. And it seems certainly like exciting times for fat promotions. And hopefully that keyword stability is something we see more of moving forward as well as we start to move out of social restrictions more and more. Of course, at the time of recording today on June the 8th, 2021, we're keeping our fingers crossed for the coming Monday, June the 14th, when we'll hear whether or not June the 21st, the final milestone of the government's roadmap out of lockdown is going to go ahead. And as we sort of wait for that news, uh, Fiona, I'd be interested to understand uh, what you see for your business fat promotions over the course of the next year and where ideally you'd like to be this time in 2022 as we move out of the post-COVID world, just before we wrap things up? Yeah, well, I think the big shift for us is we're looking at um, productizing what we offer because we're a service-based business. And like many service-based businesses, we uh, offer a bespoke and customized service. So we're always thinking about, oh, well, every client is different. But over the last year, we've been able to look at what are the commonalities? What are the same needs that we see coming up again and again for industry? 
And we're putting that into, uh, we're developing a piece of software for the charity sector to help them manage their volunteers and their service users. Because that's something we've seen they've really struggled with, where they perhaps are trying to manage people who aren't paid staff and they're trying to manage them remotely, and it's become a bit of a nightmare for them. So we've identified that, developed a piece of software, and we're now launching that in the next six months, and that's going to be on a subscription basis. And I think that's more the direction that service-based companies need to look at, is how can you productize what it is that you offer? Because people now want to pay a small, affordable subscription monthly or you know, bi-monthly or annually, whatever, so they can just keep that service going. I think that's, again, that stability keeps coming up. That's what people are looking for going forward. So that's where we'll, we're going to be focusing our efforts over the next 12 to 24 months. Mm. Certainly sounds like um, exciting times, Fiona, and I wish you all the luck in the world in sort of seeing those plans come to fruition. And I think as well as we start to sort of get a clearer picture as to what the future is going to bring, it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the show with us just to see how things are getting on maybe this time in a year. Yes, lovely. It's really nice to be in a positive place. I know this this time last year, we were all a bit kind of really don't know which way the wind's going to blow. And uh, it, like with everything, it happens for a reason. There's always a little bit of good comes out of something. Obviously, there's been some terrible losses for life for the economy, but there's also been good stuff come out of it. So I think that's all we can do as human beings is focus on the good that's come out of it and what we want to do to protect ourselves in future. So that's what we're looking at as a business and as a team. It's exactly right. It's all we can do. And that positivity most certainly is infectious. Let's just keep our fingers crossed. And also, Fiona, since we're not quite out of it yet, but better times certainly are coming, do continue also to take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on. Thank you, Scott. Same to you. It was a pleasure to welcome Fiona Ormantrine of Fat Promotions back onto the show today. And uh, coming up next on the programme, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and the former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be offering his take on the happenings of the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks to come. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in 
that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between 
the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And 
one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public 
who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.